and it's coming over through that water. That German was had his sights trained on him, and he was shooting them all in there. And he spotted me just on the other side, and he fired at me, and that's where he hit me. Well, then I fired back at him later on, and I hit him on the face. And I could see him lying there, and they blood shooting out of his face like that. Those things happened, and you're not here to inquire. You're here to carry out orders. Well, I feel, I feel it, uh, it was useless. It's all for nothing. All for nothing. Especially whenever you see all the graveyards here, all the young lads from 17 to 22 lying there. All for nothing. Men in their 90s recalling what it was like at the Battle of the Somme the day it began on the 1st of July, 1916. All three are Ulster Protestants, bound tightly together by the events of that bloody day. They were fighting men in the Ulster Division of the British Army and witnessed 5,766 boys and men from their division alone falling as casualties in that single day's combat. This story of those who survived begins not with the patriotic donning of uniforms, but with subversion. In the 21 months before the outbreak of the Great War, Sir Edward Carson recruited 100,000 Ulster Protestants into his Ulster Volunteer Force and prepared them for civil war. Their objective was to overthrow the Home Rule Bill, due to become law in 1914, and it seemed at the time to give all Ireland its own Parliament. Carson imported 20,000 rifles from Germany. Fearing a coup d'etat, home rulers formed their own Irish volunteers who also smuggled in German guns. Then, in August 1914, Britain found itself at war with both Germany and the Habsburg Empire, and the rival sets of volunteers were urged by their leaders to enlist on the British side. But first, Carson secured a guarantee that a special Ulster division would be created to accommodate his Ulster volunteers. Contrary to popular belief, recruitment into this special Ulster division was slow. Historian Philip Orr. Now when the war came, of course, it's a myth to suggest that the Ulster division, or the UVF, joined up en masse into the Ulster division. Uh, They waited quite a while until Carson had worked out some kind of deal with uh, the British government so that a home rule wouldn't be passed during the period of the war before Carson gave the okay to men in the uh, UVF to join up. But uh, even at that period, there's evidence of considerable anti-British feeling, uh, the uh, anti-British army feeling. There a number of farmers, for instance, in uh, the province were reluctant to allow their horses even to be requisitioned by the British army. Um, And recruitment in certain areas in Ulster, particularly the rural areas, was not all that spectacularly good. Um, There was a feeling that the army was something for the work-shy and the thriftless. Um, The Ulster Protestant hadn't such perhaps a strong tradition of of joining up, certainly in rural areas, into into the army. But army life was a welcome escape from the hardships and dreariness of Belfast. Tom Irvine had grown up the hard way in the red bricks of the east of the city. His drinking parents took little interest in him. He learnt how to box and play music and fend for himself. Tom joined the Scouts and then the UVF. A 19-year-old, when war broke out, he still remembers the recruiting meeting at Orangefield, which changed his life. Halfway down, there was another man walking alongside me, and I knew he worked in the shipyard. I said to him, what about your tools? He says, oh, damn it, I forgot about that. 
He says, well, I think Ireland, I can't go over here now. I said, well, neither can I. I'll have to go and get my tools. So when we got to the bottom of Timberwood Avenue, we both lived in the Newton Arch Road at that time. We, we dropped out and everybody started the booze. But that we, <laughs> they thought we were um, uh, changing the mind and been joining up, you see. They're all marching to some over the side of it. But anyway, we didn't have to the idea of it. And he and I met on Monday morning, went over, and he went to his place and got his tools. I got mine, and then we met again. And away we went, we brought our tools home, and then away we went to the recruiting office. And then they sent us direct to Billy Kilner. And when we got there, there was the cellar. It was a wilderness. But there was two big marquees up that, that had been erected that, that day, I think. Because when we pushed the, uh, open, open the marquee, there was about half a dozen officers all sitting round a table. So they told us someone in, and uh, we give all the particulars there. So we were the first two in there, Tommy McHearn and I, and he was killed later on, Tommy. After about 10 minutes after just talking to me, he was killed. He was a sniper. Well, anyway... Uh, Can you remember that? Pardon? Can you remember that? Event. I do. I don't want to. Brings it's, it's a sad, sad memory, of course. Well, anyway, when we went to Billy Killer's there was Sandy, there was nobody there, only the officers and, and, and the marquee. And uh, they had a set of men, uh, the man not there to put the tents up yet. And I said, there was nobody there when we came in. He says, have a look out now. So I went out. And there was a crowd of people there. They had just arrived, apparently. And he had been talking to somebody on the phone and they knew they were coming. And I started to put the tents up. So then one of the officers said to me, Tommy, if you like, you can you go and get him a bit of hand to put the tents up. So Tommy McCurran and I went and helped to put the tents up. And uh, we slept that and every night after that. But uh, when we went to Billy Kinder, of course, we had, we had no uniforms or anything. I had the uh, uh, UVF uniform, and that was Kirky. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it was a funny thing after we got settled in, in the tents and that, they decided that they would compensate everybody that had to bear their own clothes. So as far as I remember, everybody got three pounds. And I was lucky I got three pounds too, because I, I was lucky because I wore the UVF uniform. Mm -hmm. Some who had not been in the UVF also enlisted in the Ulster or 36th Ulster Division to give it its full title. Men like Jim Maltzid, who resigned his clerical job at the Belfast Steamship Company to go soldiering a month after the war broke out. He kept a journal of his experiences. Call to arms we boys. Most of us were boys. Anything from 16 to 22. Served our first few weeks in drilling in Davidson's yards but got home each evening. Funny soldiering. What? And no uniform yet. Just civvies. How we drilled. Marched, doubled, formed up, reformed, over and over, by numbers. One, two, one, two. Then came a day and the order was get your kit bag packed and off we go to camp. Way up in Donegal. Finner camp, Ballyshannon. A harsh winter at Finner was followed by a better spring and summer at Randallstown, County Antrim, where his 14th Battalion of Royal Irish Rifles continued training until July the 6th, 1915. 
left Randallstown on the 6th of July 1915 for somewhere in England. Our route was via Dublin and Hollyhead, then right down through England via London to land in Seaford on the south coast, a little seaside spot in Sussex. The inhabitants were a bit scared at first of the wild Irishmen, about 25,000 or so. Lord Kitchener inspected the Ulstermen in July, Carson in August, and all the time the big guns could be heard booming across the channel. Finally, on the 3rd of October, Malsed and his comrades set sail from Southampton, not knowing where they were bound. The following day, they landed in northern France. How it rained, soaked in a short time. This was a miserable start to a new life. At last we reached camp. Tents and mud. Oh, that mud. The usual stuff in unloading stores, rations, etc. Fatigue parties galore, bully beef, biscuits and tea for dinner, then more hard graft. Sleep or no sleep, the men marched on towards the front. Malsed carried a heavy pack and complained its shoulder straps cut into him. But an old song in which they all chimed in gave the troops new heart. Ninety-four-year-old Tom Irvine plays his mouth organ today with a little less breath than he mustered for his own company as it marched towards the Somme in the autumn of 1915. Did many men with you sing that song? Pardon? Did many men with you in the war sing that song? Did everybody sing it? But, you know, as we're going along the road, you talk about writing songs. Somebody would start off a line just more often about girls, you know. Um, meeting Molly on the road and so on, and and then one one fellow would get started off, another fellow would add his line to, and the finish up was perfect march in time, and most of the songs were were good for marching, and uh, the, the trips were marvelous that way. There's so many of them all. Uh, there was about fifty or fifty-two or fifty-three of us in, in the same the night platoon. And we were always together, and we knew the songs that we had practiced before. And going along the road everywhere, 
the, the chaps in front and the one behind was telling us that they could hear us quite plainly singing. You must have been a valuable member then of the platoon if you were able to play the harmonica. That just, uh, yes, most people were very glad to have you on parade when you went out, even the officers liked it, you know. But as well as that, I played the pipes. And Tom remembers piping not just for his own Ulster division, but for the 16th division as well. This would have been a unique ecumenical experience for Tom because the 16th was composed of Irish nationalists. And now the 16th division was the National Salvatore of the Air Force. Well, they had a band of some sort, but I got to know them through playing football with them. Yeah. And then they knew I was a piper and they asked me to bring the pipes. And I went to the Monday house and I played the pipes up and down and they all danced and laughed and their hands and one thing and all. And they were the best of friends. What were their favourite tunes? Uh, they, uh, oh, I, I, I wasn't playing anything that I thought that would annoy them. I was just wanting to amuse them, not to, to fix them. <laughs> <laughs> and another soldier in the Ulster Division, Tommy Jordan, remembers meeting Irish nationalists from the 16th Division at training camp in England. We met them first at Farnborough in England. The 16th Division? The 16th, yes. And there, there was a line across the road, Shammy La Passe. He'll not pass. Yeah. But we, we talked to the fellas over the line. Yeah. And there was a good orchard somewhere nearby. Some of the lads went over there and we shared apples one thing. We were best of friends. They mixed. We had a whole lot of the 16th Division eventually into the Orchard Division. Uh, they were the 7th Rifles and uh, we got an old Major, I think they're called Cahoon. And he came up to Montecats. Nice old man. He came up to take over our company, you see. Yeah. And I asked him, I was on the, I was looking after the officer's mess this particular day. For some reason, Spencer, the waiter, had been elsewhere. So uh, I said, have you had breakfast there, you see? Oh, he said, a long time ago. I went into the hole in the ground, and I said to the cook, Jack Murray, I said, Jack, a boiled egg, there's a major here, came up from either the Linsters or the Monsters. While I was in there, one came over and hit the wall and cut it half the face of the poor old man. Right. And his Batman was a Mick Sullivan, a big fellow. He was in a terrible state about the Major. He had been with him, his Batman, he said. Yeah. But the, the Major was taken away before I even saw him. But uh, were those th- kind of things, and you weren't allowed to dwell on the passing of someone, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, that was the kind of thing that went on. This was the true face of war. The Ulster Division was now staring at it daily from their trenches in Picardy, out across a narrow strip of no man's land. Here, Tom Irvine could eavesdrop on an anonymous enemy who called him Paddy. Oh, they, I never met the man who called me Paddy, but I could hear them on the other side shouting, Paddy! I said, hello, playing music. That's my wife. 
He used to call me Paddy all the time. And we were all Paddies at the end. Is that calling across no man's land? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that used to happen quite often. We called them, and uh, they called us. And I put a, a wee mirror up uh, uh, to look at the sit down, looking over the lane. Got very tiresome and cold. So I a wee mirror that my sister sent me for for, for shaving. I stood, uh, instead of looking across there, I put it up on the bank on the other side. Then I could sit there and look into the mirror and see them over there. And then I, got, I was just getting myself nice and comfortable until I got, bing! <laughs> the Germans were good, good shots. The diarist, Jim Maltzard, remembers rats infesting his trench. In the line, it simply swarmed with them. And the dugouts had their hundreds and thousands of these visitors. It gave you a funny kind of feeling down your spine to strike up a light in the underground passages and see all those little dots of sparkling flame glare out at you from all the corners and crevices. Their eyes shining in the half-darkness. Then a scurry off. We walked over them. This was unpleasant, and it was worse to wake up from a doze to feel them scamper over your face. Oh, it was horrible but we got used to it all. I remember one part of the line we were in, and oh my, they were fat. Big stomachs. Good food somewhere. Though luxuries were scarce, Tommy Jordan remembers joining a Dublin man to squander the little in the way of wine that came their way one day. They were a step and a half above the rest of us. You know, that's the impression I got of them. One fellow... I remember him, Tommy Ochenclos. That was his name, and he uh, he was a post he was a postman in a post office, and I saw him in a field post office. Uh, I was sent to a place called Proven, from the River Lies. That was the furthest advance point we were for a pair of officers' breeches. And on the way back, I brought six bottles of Vin Blanc <laughs> in a sandbag. And I lost my track. I didn't know just where it was coming back in the dark. And the fellow says, there's a field post office down there. He'll direct it. And Tommy was in it. Tommy glass. So I broke one of the bottles. They drank with the bottle, and I broke the glass and put it in the sandbag. You see, the officers had paid for it. For Jim Molsid, luxury was no more and no less than a solid building to sleep in. And on Christmas Day 1915, he got decent shelter when his squad was billeted in an old lady's parlour. Sports in the morning. Plum pudding at dinner hour. I remember it was sticky stuff and hard to digest, so my share was light. We washed it down with vin blanc and citron. This is not good French or good English either, but it's what we call them and will do very well. Night falls. We have sing-song. Stories about the past. Ghosts as per usual. More wine. Not for me. I'm a strict old TT. The boys get very jolly. Well. Well, let them. God alone knows how many of us will be together for Christmas 1916. 
Somehow or another, I did not feel too happy as I kept on thinking. 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 I'd like to tell you about Colin Campbell. Colin was a fellow who couldn't say yes, I, or no, you see. If you ask Colin a question, well, now, um, uh, he hemmed in there hard. Is he an officer? See? No, he was just a rifle oh. man. And uh, I said, well, Colin, what do you think of the situation now? We were on the boardwalk at Apes. Well, now, after a lot of thought, he says, I've <laughs> given it careful consideration. Really and truly, he says, Tommy, he says, I think this is the end, you see? Why says you're putting a wind up me? Well, he says, that's just how I feel. He went up, and he and Jimmy English, two others. Sergeant Medall came back. Our sergeant says, where's Campbell and English? And I forget the other two lads. But old says, oh, I don't know where they are. He was, he was in a bit of a flutter, this Sergeant Medall. So he had to go back, and now they were, they were dead. And uh, those kind of things happened, you see. Yeah. But, uh, I felt I got, you got in a flutter. That was it? That was it. But did you yourself ever have premonitions that you would die in the trenches? No. No, no, I never thought of dying. I never thought of dying. I was scared to death time and again, like everybody else. The fellow who wasn't scared there, he wasn't telling the truth. No. That's all. Oh, no. There she comes. Yes, yeah, straight down on us. We are thrown yards away. Crashed up against the back of the trench, all in a heap. My nose bleeds. I feel myself all over, still safe, no bones broken. What a flash. What a roaring sound. As if the very heavens had fallen apart. Picking myself up, I am surprised to see the bottom of the trench littered with razor blades, horseshoe nails, scrap iron, and bits of glass. What a war. Casualties were mounting. The war in the trenches had reached stalemate and Britain brought in conscription early in 1916. The French, growing desperate under a huge German assault at Verdun, begged the British to counter-attack and they set about planning a big push across the River Somme. They prepared the Ulster Division, stationed for some months in the area near Thiepville Wood, and half a million other troops, mostly from northern England, for their planned attack on June the 29th. This zero hour was then abandoned because of rain, but the commanders extended their five-day-long artillery bombardment of German lines until half-seven on the morning of July the 1st. Jim Molsid remembers the night before the attack. The wood is a mass of flame. Shells bursting, trees crashing, all is confusion and din. A din that shocks the eardrums, a din that puts trying to talk to your nearest chum out of all consideration. We stagger on, then turn right, crouching down, 
we passed into our assembly trench to rest for the night, awaiting the dawn. We cannot rest. It's impossible. You cannot sit or lie down. Just stand up and wait. Slowly the night hours pass away, hours of torture and misery. My thoughts race round and round. Home, loved ones, and the future. Would I lose an arm, or a leg, or both? God save me from the loss of my sight. How I dreaded blindness. Oh, anything but that. What was heaven really like? Would I meet my dear old dead mother up there once again? Yes, I would. It gives me great calmness. I'm not afraid now. Why should I fear death? My little pocket Bible rests in my breast pocket, right over my heart. Watches are looked at every few minutes. Nearly 6 a.m., we take a final look at our bombs and our rifles. The air is rent with a tornado of gunfire, the last hour. Hurricane shelling now. Jerry is on the jump. He fears the dawn, too. His guns make reply to ours. Are we really coming? Surely hell is no more, or no less than this. Lieutenant Monard's voice startled me. Have some rum, Jim. No, sir, I refuse. We shake hands and say no more. Sergeant, if I go out, here's my address. Will you call and tell them? Oh, sure, old man. I'll do that. This, a request from a pal. Goodbye, old chum. And some of the men, they were just slip trench with, with the carriers. These men were there for to carry ammunition. And they, they, they were all, uh, had some false nervous disposition or something like that. And there was a line of them, about seven of them, and they shouted at me, Tommy, shoot him, shoot him. I couldn't have done that. Anyway, I, I felt sorry for the poor soul. But I held my rifle between the legs. And I made him turn round. I searched them all over in case he would have any weapons on. But he had nothing of that kind. I even took his pocket book out and I saw his children and his wife's photographs. I put it back in and I tapped him on the shoulder and told him to go on down that way. The West Ravens were waiting to come in and reserve. And that's where I sent them to the West Raven Regiment. And he went down there, but his hands up. And that was, that was the first of July. That was on the 1st of July, in the morning. We had, the attack hadn't started then, you see. But how he got them over there, I don't know. That was a mystery. Right. How he got through the lines, because uh, uh, you, you wouldn't have thought that that could have happened, you know. But Irvine's surprise at meeting this German hours before the big push turned to alarm when the actual battle began at half-past seven. But the, once the, what, what, the, the, the segment for us to start was a very tremendous explosion. Boom! That was start. And when they started the attack, and I hadn't got more than a couple of yards when I got hit here. Yeah. A bullet went through there. And the, um, 
I was limping about, and I spat at the fellow that done it. I could just see him moving. He was in a round hole, and the men were coming. They had to go through water. They had to go down into the water for to get over to the, the line. And as they were coming up through that water, that German was had his sights trained on them, and they were shooting them all in there. And he spotted me just on the other side, and he fired at me, and that's where he hit me. Well, then I fired back at him later on, and I hit him on the face. Come on, boys, Lieutenant Monard yells. We follow, up and over the rough trench ladders into the shell-shattered wood, across a wooden gangway over our front-line trench, and we are out into no-man's land. A wall of flame meets us. We stagger and gasp from shock. My very hair seems to scorch under the impact. The air is full of hissing, burning metal, and the ground rocks beneath our feet as we tear our way through our own wire defences. At last! At last we are attacking! Boom! Boom! Crash! Crack! Rat-a-tat-tat! Zip! 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 How the bullets sing past, like angry bees. Clouds of black smoke blinds us. My eyes smart. What is this sweet-smelling stuff? Tear gas? Shells? Close up, boys! Keep your line, I yell. We surge forward across that blackened shell-bleached strip of ground. Steady, as if on parade. Those boys of ours faced a fire that was simply hell. The sun shines down on us. Bayonets sparkle and glint. Cries and curses rent the air. Chums fall, some without a sound, and others... Oh, my God, may I never hear such cries again. Well, then, there was a shell burst above our heads, and they were nearly all badly wounded with that. And uh, there, was, uh, there I was, I couldn't move very well because I didn't know exactly what my leg would have been like. I thought that had burst everything and the leg would have been no good. Well, anyway, I found that if I held on to something, I could walk a bit. So I went away, I went away with the rest of them. I only got it for two of the yards when the shell burst up on my head. And they were all behind me. And there was about five or six of them all blown to bits. I was lucky again mm. because uh, uh, I got shrapnel all over me. Mm -hmm. The back of my neck and mm. my shoulders, not. And uh, I, I knew nothing more after that. When Jim Maltzed reached the German front line, he spotted an enemy machine gun mowing down his fellow Ulsterman. Rapid orders to my bombing section, and we at once attacked by turning right, down the trench, cover to cover, shell hole to shell hole. We rushed and closed in on the troublesome spot. A head appears, a rifle. I take rapid aim, crack, two arms cleave the air. A big German jumps up from a trench, hurls a bomb, crash! My God, Mr. Wedgwood is gone. 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 I see red. Blood. 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 My breast bursts with anger. I rise and rush straight at the German bomber. He rises up to meet me. His rifle jumps to his shoulder to shoot. Quick as a flash, I hurl a Mills bomb. Shattering flame around his face. The lifeless trunk slides back into the trench 
and Ace laid in, on top of it. I'm all alone. Alone. The last. The last of... Thirteen. I count the lifeless bodies as they lie in horrible positions. Crushing a bomb into their little dugout in case of treachery, I destroyed the neatness of this little home. Their packs, bleak square packs, ranged along a wooden shelf. Packs that would never more be worn. His officer, Mr Wedgwood, now dead, Sergeant Molsed led his bombing section through five lines of enemy trenches. Then the evening fell. Gathered in small groups, officers are almost a rarity. They have nearly all gone. We bunch together for companionship and moral support. All hope of support from the rear has now gone. We dimly realise that our hours are numbered. Surrounded on three sides by an enemy far, far superior in numbers, it sinks into our bemused brains that it's all up. Christ, Sergeant, this is a mess. I look at the speaker. He wears the badges of the Irish Fusiliers and is quite young. By heavens, you are right, chum. Tis a hell of a mess. Jumping up, he laughs a horrible laugh and waves his arms at the German position, then shouts, Come on! Come on, you... Plop. His body crashes down beside me, all in a tangle. Poor fellow. All his earthly troubles are over. As men lost their nerves all round him, Molsed vowed never to surrender. The slopes of Thiepville run red with the blood of Ulstermen, dead in heaps, dying in hundreds. God above us, this is glorious war. Huddled together, surrounded, the end is near. Rifle flashes stab the half-darkness. Friend and foe are now almost unrecognisable. All is utter confusion. Every man for himself. We are fighting back to back. A last hope. Bullets nip and zip around us. The gun flashes of the Germans are not thirty yards away. We yield ground as little parties are simply wiped away. Clean away. Survivors crawl back. Turn around. Fight. Then retreat again but still facing their front, dying in their tracks. Crash! I'm done. Like a thousand-ton hammer it strikes me. The rifle drops from my grasp. I spin around and round. All the world is going round in circles. I'm clubbed from the back with the butt-end of a rifle. No! Anger and annoyance struggle for mastery. Then blood. Blood. Blood everywhere. All over me. I can feel it. I sink down. It rushes in a hot, quick gush from my mouth. It streams over my breast. 
on the back of my neck. In the name of God, where am I hit? I try to lift my right arm up to my head. It refuses to act. Thoughts run through my brain, my right arm gone. Will I never be able to box again or sketch? Hell, I'm finished. Rough hands grasp me. I groan. They turn me over on my face, cut the equipment straps away, cut the khaki jacket clear, and pour a bottle of iodine into the open wound. I quiver. The pain is terrific. Now, Sergeant, you'll be as right as rain. In the glare of the gun flashes, I could see two young boys from a sister rifle battalion bending over me, cutting one of my putties clean off. Between them, they bound my wound as best they could. I have wondered a thousand times since that fatal night who they were. Did they survive? How I should love to meet those heroic boys once again. One binds me. The other takes up his rifle and shoots, all to save an unknown sergeant. My strength is running out. I'm smothered in red-hot blood. Around me, over me, surges the hand-to-hand battle, a handful of Irish lads fighting to the end. Come on, sergeant, get out of it. My friends lift me bodily up, push me over the back of the trench and shout, Crawl back! You can do it! I try to stand up. My legs wobble and down I slide. No strength left. I'll crawl. What a journey. Can I ever forget? With all its tortures, all its miseries, and the heart-rending sights I crawled over. Never. 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 Like a red-hot poker searing the flesh, the memory of that journey is imprinted on my brain. Crash! I'm thrown high into the air and fall with a sickening thud on my useless right arm. The pain, it's terrible. My eyes close. I give up the struggle. The struggle to live. The will to survive is gone. Let me rest and die. What's that moaning at my side? I take a slight interest. A weak voice whispered, Water. Water. A voice with the noise of death in it. Where does it come from? Beside me, Set up against the side of the trench is a German. I lie and gaze and gaze closer. Was it a ghost? I think of a man, both legs gone, one arm gone, and the top of his head blown off. Yet he speaks. I want to live again. I work my hand slowly round to my water bottle, my left hand. I raise myself up and place the nozzle of the bottle in the poor creature's mouth, a bottle that contained not a drop of any liquid. 
His teeth snapped through the top of the mouthpiece, like a rat trap, and the trunk slides down. The spirit has gone. God above me. This is war. Helped by the Red Cross, Jim Molsted reached a hospital on the French coast. A bullet had left a gaping hole in his back, and he returned to Belfast an invalid. But within a year, he was ordered back to France, where he took part in three major battles and survived them all. He was awarded a certificate praising his conspicuous bravery on July the first, nineteen sixteen. The Ulster Division generally was heaped with praise for advancing furthest into the enemy lines that day, but stranded without proper support, their victory was a pyrrhic one. In years to come, it was to be held up as Ulster's blood sacrifice for the Empire, a blood bond which earned Ulster Unionists the right to be partitioned off from the newly independent Irish Free State. This version of the Battle of the Somme is commemorated in pictures of Ulster men going over the top, wearing the sash of the Orange Order, and shouting "No surrender." But when he's shown these pictures, Tom Irvine recalls none of this. Yet, seventy-three years later, nineteen sixteen remains a turning point in loyalist history. It was also the year when Irish Republicans staged their armed rebellion against the British. In whose cause thousands of nationalist and Ulster volunteers were dying on the Western Front, Tommy Jordan remembers news of the rising reaching the men in the trenches, and the changed atmosphere he found back in Dublin one year later. Yes, we were there, and old Dobby, an old Dobby, an old fellow, Dobby Dobbin. <laughs> I needn't repeat what he said, but that he said they are England's difficulty, Ireland's opportunity. That's the way he put it. And in nineteen seventeen, when I came home and leave with a whole party, we came, landed in Dublin, Dublin Holyhead. There wasn't a cup of coffee. There was nothing. An old fellow says it's a good drink you're after, boys. I'm sure. And he took him over to this pub, and round the counter was sandwiches. So I had to go to sandwiches. The rest of the lads waiting for the train. They were having a few, and something was said. The next thing they were, they were throwing glasses or whatever, and I went out the wrong door. I went out the wrong door. I was pretty getting hit in the head with a, a bottle or something. And I met a girl. I says, "Look, I want to go to the station." She said, "Just follow me and don't walk with me." So I followed her, and on the way, when I saw the station, I went in and I got her a, a half a crown box of King George chocolate. I slipped that to her and I ran into the station. And in the seven decades that have passed since then, neither Tommy Jordan nor Tom Irvine have returned to that Dublin station. To be reunited with the nationalist volunteers they first met and played with on their way to the Somme. <laughs> 